0: started. Yeah, yeah, that's welcome back. Welcome me back. I was going last week. How did Chris do? you alright? Yeah? He's, he's a good guy. Um, if you're joining us for the first time this week, welcome. We do this every Tuesday. Thanks to the generosity of Ruth's Chris, um, the owner, Jeff Helmway. He's a good friend of ours and provides all of this and I provide the teaching and you provide the butts in the seats, and uh, so (laughs) it's a good deal, and yes, we uh, don't charge for lunch, but we do take donations, and it all goes to the kitchen staff who fixes this, so give, I always say, give what you think it's worth, and uh, we're in the book of Exodus, we've been going through Exodus, if you are just joining us, or you've jumped in kind of midstream, you can see each week we record this session. That's what the little camera right there is for. And I upload it to YouTube. So if you go want to follow along, go to YouTube, search Disciple Dojo. That's the ministry name, uh, my ministry's name, Disciple Dojo. Search that on YouTube and you can watch everything. I think we have videos all the way back to Genesis 15 or something like that. You know, we, we can do it every week and upload it. Also, thank you to my good friend Joe Tali over there. Uh, he got me to figure out how to get on iTunes. So if you guys are podcasters and you want the iTunes thing, do a search for Disciple Dojo on iTunes, and I'm going to start uploading these audio only on that as well. But I just had Joe on his phone, and it is up and available. And previous talks and other series on other Bible stories and Christian dating and um, weird Old Testament things and end time stuff, all of that kind of stuff is already up on the Disciple Dojo podcast site, so go check that out on SoundCloud or on iTunes. And if you don't know what any of those things are and it's just not your generation, that's okay, you can come here every week and enjoy food and enjoy fellowship with each other, which is always better than digitally. So... We're jumping back into Exodus chapter 16. Does anybody remember from two weeks ago what Exodus 15 was about? There are occasional pop quizzes here (laughs) on Tuesday. and People rarely pass them, apparently. (laughs) Exodus 15. Anybody remember? There was a song. We got one listener over here. (laughs) About what? When in doubt, say God, yes. It was about God. It is literally right there on your page in front of you if you have a Bible. Yeah, what did God do that they were talking to write a song about? Yes, what is the name of the book we're studying? Exodus. Exodus. Yes, chapter 15 is the song celebrating the exodus, exodusing from Egypt. That's not a word, but think of it that way. They exodused from Egypt. God delivered them, and we saw all the theological themes in the song. Chapter 14 showed the actual events as they happened. Chapter 15 gave us a reflection of worship about the events, looking back and looking forward to what God was gonna do after the Exodus because the goal of God was not just to bring the people out of slavery to Pharaoh, it was to bring them out of slavery to Pharaoh and into slavery to God. And that's a concept that may ruffle some feathers but it shouldn't when you realize that of all the beings in the entire universe, there's only one who is worthy to have slaves. And that would be God, the one who created it all. Everyone's a slave to somebody. It's just a matter of who we're going to choose to serve. And God wanted to liberate Israel from serving or worshiping in Egypt. And that word serve and worship is seen as the same word. He wanted to bring them into service to him. So he's going to bring them out of Egypt through this miraculous event where he not only shows his power over all the gods of Egypt in the plagues, but ultimately shows his power over over all of the forces of evil and chaos in the universe, which is how the Israelites would have interpreted the splitting of the sea. If you want to know more about that, hop on YouTube, check out the last uh, chapter's recap. But then after this, he leads them into a place where he provides for them fresh water to drink. There's a lot of what God's doing in Exodus has to do with water. He's the God of the waters, he's the God of the seas, he's the God of the springs, this is where the New Testament imagery comes from. Everything from Jesus sending the demonic herd of pigs into the sea, the word literally used as abyss, hearkening back to the chaos waters and the, the, the evil and the forces of darkness, and all this stuff that was personified by the sea To Jesus walking on the water, walking on the waves, which in the Old Testament, walking on the waves or splitting the water or manipulating the oceans was something that only God himself could do. And so all the way through to Revelation in the end, when John sees a vision of the new creation, it says, and there was no sea. Not because God hates snorkeling, but because the sea represents chaos and evil. And all of the things that would come against God and his people. So all these things are swirling in the imagery and then God leads them to this place where it looks like there's nothing to drink. looks like there's no fresh water and God miraculously provides for them water to drink. And then leads them to this place, Elim, where there's springs of water and palm trees, this oasis in the desert. They're somewhere in the vicinity of modern-day Saudi Arabia. Not the Sinai Peninsula, like your Bible maps say, but most likely in modern Saudi Arabia. Check two weeks ago, three weeks ago, if you missed that uh, episode. But they're wandering in this wilderness, in this mountainous region, in this rugged area, and God has shown that he's a God who can overthrow, he's a God who can liberate, he's a God who can destroy. Now he's gonna show them, teach them, he's also the God who can provide. At this point, Israel is, is we're gonna see that they, they, they start to do what we saw last chapter, a little bit of grumbling. And we read this from hindsight, so we already know, a lot of us already know the story where they grumble and they complain and they rebel and they do all this stuff for years. But this is way back in the very beginning. This is when they've just come out of slavery for 400 years. Right? So Israel was slaves longer than America's been a nation. And they are now entering into this new period in history where this unknown and unseen God, which is a radically new concept in the ancient world, all the gods could be seen. That's what idols were. That's what images were. Israel was different. Theirs was the one God who couldn't be seen, leads them out into the wilderness, out into the desert. And it's not just them and a few people with some backpacks. This is probably between 30 to 100,000 people, not the two million, like some of us would say, but between, think about, you know, like we said, think about Bank of America Stadium or so, full. That's somewhere in the vicinity of how many Israelites are, plus all of their herds, all of their livestock. All of that out into the desert is where God's leading them. That's a scary thought. And so when they start to grumble and complain a little bit, we shouldn't be too quick to jump on them. Because imagine if we were in the middle of a crowd the size of Bank of America Stadium wandering around in the desert following a cloud and trusting the word of this guy, Moses, who's done some miracles. I mean, there's that, that takes a degree of faith even with all the things that they've seen. So God's patient with them in the beginning. He's somewhat gentle with them. He's teaching them, he's forming them into a people of faith, from a nation of slaves into his people that he's going to call out. And they're in this in-between period in the wilderness, this in-between time. And later the prophets are going to refer back to this period of time as God's honeymoon phase with Israel. Literally, Hosea is going to refer to this as the time when God took them out into the desert to call them to himself. This is their honeymoon. And then God's going to marry them at Mount Sinai they are going to enter into a covenant a marriage covenant at Mount Sinai in chapters 19 and 20 so we're almost at that point but not quite yet chapter 16 the whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin it's not desert of sin like the word sin like the English word sin it's desert of sin it's different Hebrew letters and it's related to the word Sinai so there's nothing sinful about this desert. It's just the name of the location. In Hebrew, you'd say the desert of Sin, S-I-Y-N. They came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. They've been in the desert for a month, at least, at this point. Alright? Again, not a day trip. Not like in the movies where it happens all in one go. A month. Of, of living in the desert aimlessly with no direction they've got water they have provisions but they're still in the desert so there's some apprehension on their part and rightly so verse 2 in the desert the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. the Israelites said to them if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted English says food, NIV says food, the Hebrew word there is lakh like bread. Literally, we sat around pots of meat, and we had all the bread we wanted. That's important. God's going to use that in this chapter. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So that's their charge to the Moses. Now they're complaining. And this is, this is an interesting term, this is a side note, but it says the whole community rumbled against it. That word community, eda, is a Hebrew word that's later translated, in the Old Testament, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, which is what Jesus and his apostles read, uh, they used a the word to translate this ecclesia, which later became the word church. So this is kind of an old, this is like the Old Testament equivalent of church. It's not, the church isn't a New Testament thing, it's, it's been around since as long as God's people have. It's also funny because as long as there's been a church, it's been grumbling. And those of you who know, so work in churches and you know, if you've ever worked in a church or you grew up in one, my dad's a preacher, so I'll give you inside scoop. Lots of grumbling in churches. Get used to it. And so then they, they tell Moses the church. There we sat around. This is in Egypt. In slavery, we sat around pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. No, they didn't. They didn't sit around anywhere. They made bricks all day. They engaged in backbreaking breaking labor. They ate whatever they could get. They certainly weren't sitting around feasting. When, you, when you're facing uncertainty and fear and you look back to where you came, no matter how crappy it was where you came from, there's always the temptation to look back longingly, and, and, oh, I used to have it so good. We see this a lot, too, when people talk about our societies in decline. Remember the good old days. There were no good old days. The good old days were terrible. You know, the good old days in America, which good old days? When my black friends couldn't drink from the same water fountain that I could? When we were driving Native Americans off their land? We were sending people to die in the jungles of Vietnam for no reason? The good old days are never good unless you had it good at the time. And Israel didn't have it good at the time, but they're remembering because their present struggle is so strong. And their uncertainty and their fear is so great that it's causing them to retroactively make their previous life a lot better than it was. And it was terrible. But yet that's their complaint against them. So verse four, then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. That word in English, instructions, in Hebrew, it's singular, and it's Torah. This is the preview, the beginning of what's going to later be the full-blown Sinai covenant, the Torah. And Torah just means instruction or teaching. So to see if they will follow my Torah, I'm going to, God's going to give them a test, a provision. He's going to provide for them, and in doing so, it's going to be a way that tests their faith as well. It's a mutually beneficial thing going on. So on the sixth day... They're to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So this test is going to involve, it's going to be the structure of what we know now as the Sabbath, is going to be built into this testing that God's going to give them, into the very structure of it. So, verse 6 Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. Because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? In, in other words, we weren't the ones that brought you out here. Moses is there. And Aaron. this was the, all along, it's been the Lord doing it. And that's what Israel has to get in mind. Because they're going to turn their grumbling. They're going to turn their complaints. They're going to turn their rebellion towards something visible, which is their leadership. When in reality, the whole time, the real cause behind everything is the unseen God who's over all things. And so Moses is going to keep continuing focusing Then it's God who's done this, it, not me, not Aaron. Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning. Because he's heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. So Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come, or literally draw near, Before the Lord, for he has heard your grumble. So God's response initially now is not this, oh, who are you to grumble against me? I'm going to throw a lightning bolt, right? It's not that kind of, it's, I've heard your grumbling. Come here, come here. He understands their complaints. Draw near to me. I'm going to show you the kind of God I am. There's no rebuke here. There's no harshness here. There's just this, Moses saying, hey, don't, don't argue against us. Take it up with God. And in fact, God's heard your grumbling. He's going to show you what he's going to do. So get ready, and so in the evening you're going to realize. In the morning you're going to see the glory of the Lord. That's term glory of the Lord. Literally in Hebrew it means heaviness of God, or felt presence. It's like a presence so thick you could touch it or feel it or sense it. And it comes in many forms. A lot of times it's pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, or smoke that fills the um, inner courts. But at this point it's going to come in the morning, and it's going to come in the form of this stuff that God's going to bring them. That's going to be His glory. Uh, while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud So they have a visual reference in the evening This is the Lord we've been following this pillar of cloud and by night the pillar of fire guides them and leads them and reminds them So they have some witness some tangible idea that God is with them in this mysterious way verse 11 and this is I think parenthetical uh, the Lord had said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. 13, that evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. Now this just mentions quail. Quail will get mentioned later in numbers uh, to, to this whole generation again when they're when God really does get angry with them for grumbling. But the quail, these little birds, maybe six, seven inches, and, and they migrate from Africa over the sea, and by the time they cross the Red Sea into what is now where the Sinai is, usually they're exhausted. And a lot of times um, there's accounts from the ancient world, near from today when the migratory patterns of crows come, they're so tired from their journey and they land that you can literally grab them by hand. I mean, you, you don't have to really hunt them, you can just grab them. And so that could be what's going on, but again, it's the timing and it's the amount of provision. This isn't just a few quail here and there. This is enough to feed Bank of America Stadium. So, a lot of quail in the evening, and then in the morning, there was this layer of dew on the camp, which is normal. You know, in the morning there's dew everywhere. But when the dew was gone, verse 14, thin flakes like frost, frosted flakes. Uh, No, it doesn't say that, but thin flakes (laughs) like frost on the ground, Appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. They said to each other in Hebrew, Manu. That's how you say, What is it? Manu. And it also sounds like the Egyptian word menu, which is food. And so some translations and Josephus and others have them saying, Is this food? So it's kind of this wordplay on the Hebrew and the Egyptian, like, What is this? Is this the food? Is this the bread? Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person to have in your tent. An omer is about a two liter. So think a two liter Coke. And that's about how much each person is to have. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much. He who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers, for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. This is the first time the word Sabbath is used in Scripture, if you're counting. Um, This this is the first time the the noun form, Shabbat, Sabbath, is found. And it's built into this provision that God gives them. He's providing for them this food in the wilderness. Uh, So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded. And it did not stink or get maggot in their 401k. It becomes (laughs) maggoty, and it rots. And God's instilling in them the lesson, no, this is your daily bread. You're not going to be hoarders. You're not going to be misers. You're not going to be savers. You're going to trust me that every day I'm going to give you what you need for that day. Does it start to ring a bell when you think of Jesus and the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. And if you try to keep some of it, not trusting that I'm going to provide you some more the next day, it's going to spoil Because I'm proving to you, I'm testing you to see if you're going to be obedient to me. So every day you're going to go collect a lot. Now, what about the people who are real healthy and can collect for like hours and and get a bunch of it? Whereas the people who may be sick, maybe they're elderly, maybe they're invalid, whatever, they can't gather as much. Do they just get less? No, God made it so that everyone gathered what they were able and everyone had enough. Not Some people gathered and some people just hung out and said, oh, go get me some. It's not like that. Everyone did what they could, but everyone was provided for. So it wasn't fair, but it was just. In other words, it wasn't this, you know, you, you get what you deserve, you get what you work for, and that's it. No, it was do the best you can, leave the results to God. And if they did that, then everyone had enough. No one had too much. No one had leftovers. Everyone had just what they needed. God is instilling in them a way to look at wealth, savings, work, all of these things that they're going to need as they enter into being a people who aren't slaves anymore, who have their own society, and who are going to be set up, and their society is going to need to take care of one another. That's something that gets lost in a lot of societies throughout history. So... Um they saved it to morning, as Moses commanded, it didn't stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath for the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you're to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there won't be any. Nevertheless, again, hard heads, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my Torah? Bear in mind the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That's why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. So this, the, the, God is, is introducing this concept formally of the Sabbath and it's a gift that he gives to the people. The Sabbath is for their rest as well as to test their obedience. Keeping Sabbath is an act of worship and an act of faith. It's not just something that you do as a duty and Jesus is going to have to remind people of this in his time. When they flipped it upside down and they made people have to serve the Sabbath, they've taken this command. God's command on the Sabbath is simple. Don't do work. Don't do your job. Don't do what you would normally do to earn your living. All right, That's the essence of the Sabbath command. Take a day off. And trust that in those other six days, I will have given you enough to compensate for it. All right? That's the heart of the Sabbath. But what it got turned into by tradition, by later Jewish groups, even in Jesus' day, it became this, God says, don't work. So let's interpret that exactly to what it means. And they came up with how many steps you could take on the Sabbath or what you could do. Even today, you go to Israel, don't expect to ride an elevator on the Sabbath because pushing a button to go to the floor you want is considered a work. So elevators don't run on the Sabbath. So what do you end up having to do? Have to walk up flights of stairs, which is more work. There's just all of this. It's stranding out a gnat and swallowing a camel is what Jesus called it. There's all these practices people want to build around God's commands. And legalism creeps in. And they miss the point of the command in the first place, which is God says, I have given you the Sabbath. It's not just something else for you to have to keep. It's something that forms you and it also teaches you who I am. Sabbath reveals about us and it reveals about God. Now, we in the New Covenant, we don't keep Sabbath technically. That's part of the Ten Commandments that's going to come later. But we're not under the the old Ten Commandments covenant. We're under the New Covenant. So there's going to be some fuzziness and there's going to be some leeway in the New Testament when Gentile Christians start coming to faith and they start saying things like, so do we have to keep this Sabbath thing that you Jews keep or what's the deal with that? We'll get to that in a couple of years. That's New Testament. <laughs> right now in the Old Testament, it's God's people and it's what he's instilling into them. So it's the principles of it that we need to see more than anything. And he's given it to them as a gift. So verse 31, the people of Israel called the bread manna because it's like, what is it? Or whatchamacallit, if you remember the candy bar. That's kind of what they call it, what is it? What's this stuff? People call it the bread manna. It was white, and there should be a comma here, if you're an English Bible reader. It, it doesn't say it was white like coriander seed, because coriander seed's not white. It was white, comma, like coriander seed. In other words, small, round, it was granules. It was, think of like, um, you know, you know dipping Dots? Like the futuristic ice cream stuff, dipping Dots. Think of it like that, or Nerds candy, like that. That kind of stuff. It was gathered, collected, and then it would be ground up, like into into made into bread into flour. So it's not like when I was a kid, I thought God just throwing bread on the ground, right? Or these flakes falling on the ground. of Just this nice baked yeast-filled bread. It wasn't any of that. It was stuff that they had. It was it was like grain, but it was this. They don't know what it is, so they just call it. What is it? They call it manna. Some people have tried to say, today, in the Sinai area, there's a certain bug that gets on the tamarisk plants, and it punctures the plants, and it draws out their whatever kind of juices or whatever in the plant, and in that process, it leaves behind this sweet, like sucrose-type residue that's white, and that the Bedouin in the area actually gather and eat that. They bake it into stuff and eat it. So some people say that that's the manna. And they didn't know that at the time, and so they just called it that. Maybe, but remember, Bank of America Stadium, all right? They're not just pulling residue off a of few plants and existing on like that. This is, there's enough for each person to have a two liter of this stuff every day and two two liters on Saturday. So this is far beyond what bugs make on plants out in that area. This is more than, this is a supernatural provision by God. So Moses said to Aaron, oh, the people called the Israel manna excuse me, people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white, caught like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. So it was sweet. It was, it, was, it was really good. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer, a two liter, of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it then place it before the Lord to be kept for generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony. That's the Ark of the Covenant. And we haven't been introduced to that yet because it hasn't been made yet. That will come later in the book. But this is kind of a jumping forward and letting you know eventually what happened to this stuff. He put it in front of the testimony that it might be kept. The Israelites ate the manna 40 years. Now again, at this point, we don't know that Israel is going to be in the desert for 40 years. And that wasn't plan A. They were only supposed to be in the desert for a couple of months tops. Then they were going to go in and take the land. The 40 years thing comes in the book of Numbers, chapter 14, when Israel decides, you don't really like this plan, God. We're going to do it our way. And so that's when the 40 years spent. The plan all along was not for them to spend 40 years in the desert. All right? That comes later. Until they came to the land, that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. And then, for if you're wondering, an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. So... There you go. <laughs> uh, so think of like, think of 10 two liters, and that's an ephah. So later when you read the Bible and you, it says take an ephah, a fine flower, that's a lot. Um, okay, we're going to stop there. Um, two minutes left. So the point of it, the main thrust of it, this is where God is going to start introducing his people slowly with the concept of holiness. Holiness is going to be what defines the rest of the book of Exodus. Holiness is going to be what defines the rest of the Old Testament. God has called his people to be a holy people. What does holy mean? Does it mean you don't dance, you don't smoke, you don't drink? No, it doesn't mean any of that. What it means is you are to be separate. You are to be different. However, that holiness is going to come in the midst of all of these surrounding nations. He's not going to call his people to cocoon themselves off. He's going to call them to be different in the midst of everyone else. Jesus will say, be like leaven or like yeast that works its way through the dough. Or like a mustard seed that starts out really tiny and then it grows and all the birds of the year come and nest in it. It's, it's this lived out holiness that God's going to instill in his people. Differentness, separateness. There's to be something about them that's different from the Egyptians, from the Canaanites, from the Babylonians, from everybody else. And in the New Testament, the New Testament authors are going to use that same command to holiness that God gives to Israel And they're going to say, we are to be that as well under the new covenant. So it won't come from which days we observe, what kind of clothes we wear, or what food we eat. But it's going to come from something much deeper, from an inward transformation. Because in the Old Testament, the holiness that they're going to be held to is going to be a holiness that they strive to keep through their their doing certain things. But the problem all throughout the Old Testament is going to be that their heart is what needs the transformation. And so the prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel are going to come along and say, it's not the law's fault. It's not the Torah's fault that you guys can't keep it. It's your fault because your hearts are what are wicked. Your hearts are what are deceitful and you need a heart transplant. And so then in the New Testament, we're going to see, lo and behold, that's exactly what God does with the Holy Spirit in giving them of a new heart dwelling inside them. All of that to segue into a shameless plug, I just got new copies in of my book, First book I ever wrote, Cleansing and Biden," And it is all about the concept of holiness in the Bible and how different Christians have viewed it. And in some right ways and some not so right ways that Christians have viewed holiness. So, just came in this last week. So I brought a few copies. Only ten bucks. If you want to buy one, come see me. I do take credit card. Um, <laughs> that's all we have for today. Next week, Exodus 17. If you like this study and you're like, oh, I wish so-and-so would have been here. YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud and share it with, you. get the word out, tell people if you're a Twitter, or if you're an Instagrammer, or if you're all this kind of stuff, share it, spread the word. We've still got some seats left, and we'll bring in more if we need to. But it's really exciting, it's really cool to see this thing grow, and that's what Jeff has envisioned all along, especially for people that work in this community. We want to provide this as an outreach and as a service to them. So go spread the word. If you want some more food, there's still some left. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.